When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Forget the famous Battle of the Bridge. This was Monday Night Madness in North London. A night of unrelenting mayhem. A game designed to test Big Angie's idealism. Could it be that Spurs emerged stronger in defeat? It's just who we are, mate. It's just who we are. It's who we're going to be as long as I'm here. And what can Chelsea take from a huge win in what was arguably one of their worst performances of the season? I'm Ayo Akinwalere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Where do we even start with this one? Well, let's battle it out. We've got the Athletics' Adam Crafton, Spurs writer Charlie Eccleshare, and also Chelsea writer Liam Toomey as well. What a game. Five goals, five offsides, two sending offs. Liam, let's start with you on this one. A win for Chelsea, but underwhelming, wouldn't you say? Yeah, the game was a, a journey and a half. Um, in, in the first half, I think Chelsea showed good grit early on because there was a stretch in the opening 15, 20 minutes where it looked like they were in danger of being blown away. Tottenham were completely rampant, moving the ball really quickly. And, and Chelsea managed to slowly gain, gain a foothold, helped, of course, by Tottenham's over-ramped indiscipline. And then, there were, and then towards the end of the first half, I was sitting in the press box thinking, life is actually just what happens when you're waiting for a VAR check, isn't it? That, that, that's what... That, that, that's what the last sort of 25 interminable minutes of that first half felt like. But it was complete chaos. And of course, the the circumstances of the game shifted dramatically in their favour. And and what I touched on in my, my match piece was the more the circumstances of the game tilted in Chelsea's favour, the more anxious they grew and the more uncomfortable they grew. And that's been quite similar to some of the games they've lost at home this season, albeit Brentford, Nottingham Forest, uh, did not play Tottenham's high line with 11 men, never mind nine. And it, it just created quite a surreal spectacle in the second half until Chelsea managed to gather themselves enough to work through it. But even then, they managed the game uh, from 2-1 up so poorly that I, I, I haven't known a 4-1 win, especially over bitter London rivals, be greeted with, with, with so much... Sort of frustration and dissatisfaction on Chelsea fans. Um, Pochettino put the best possible spin on it after the game, but even he was really agitated in the closing stages. And as Jackson made it 3-1, he was actually remonstrating with Thiago Silva on the halfway line because he was so angry that Son had been allowed to charge unchallenged into the Chelsea half and, and generate a great shooting chance. They did their best to snatch what would have been a disastrous draw from from the jaws of what seemed like an inevitable win. But they got the win and it can potentially be a platform to best teams. Charlie, um, I mean, 
Angeball at its finest, right? <laughs> um, even with nine men. I've, I've never seen anything like it in football. I mean, that, from a neutral's perspective, this is one of the most entertaining games of the season so far. In, actually, the last couple of seasons, if anything. But a moral victory for Postacoglu? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there are two things with it. I do think there. Firstly, there are probably, we don't know, but you'd imagine there'll be long-term benefits potentially to playing in this way. There are precedents in Ange's previous jobs at Celtic and at Brisbane Raw where they had games like this, where they lost heavily, but he was completely committed to his principles and it really crystallised a lot of the messages for the players. As for in the short term, how it actually worked... I do think it worked pretty well as a tactic. Like, I think it's what's been lost because it was such a novelty and there was something quite funny about it. When you go down to nine men after 55 minutes and it's 1-1, you're going to lose that game 99% of the time, presumably. You know, like you're, you're going to lose that whatever you do, whether you stick everyone behind the ball or you try and uh, you try and attack. And actually, in the 93rd minute, they were only 2-1 down. They had Son running through to equalise. They had the... Benton Coor, chance for an equaliser just before. They had Eric Dyer having goal disallowed. Obviously, they then conceded the two late goals and they lose the game. But I, I just think they were gonna, they were likely going to lose whatever. And I think that tactic actually worked pretty well. As Liam says, Chelsea were completely flummoxed by it. And you can say, well, that's just them being idiots. But whether, you know, whether that was their own ineptitude or not, they were. So... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was extreme. It, you know, we've been told again and again, Postacoglu's not going to compromise. And this felt like a kind of test case for that. It's like, you know, even with nine men, with Eric Dyer and Pierre-Emil Hoybier as his centre-backs, Emerson Royale a left-back. I mean, it was it was kind, it was insane in lots of ways, but it really nearly worked. And hopefully he'll be thinking it will kind of, yeah, solidify a lot of his messages and might have a long-term benefit. I guess we'll have to wait and see. I'm just watching Adam Crafton in the middle of the two of you just laughing away, going, well, what I'm is just... this utter madness? Was that even a football game? <laughs> what are you thinking, Crafton? Yeah, I mean, it was fu- it was really fun and it was very funny to watch. But like, I suppose the counter to what, I, what, I, what Charlie just said is, I don't think they would necessarily have been down to nine men if he'd have changed the way he'd set up at the start of the second half. Because, okay, you can say... Udogi's made a rash challenge, but why has he made that rash challenge? He's made that rash challenge because he stretched at the end of a situation where Spurs, with 10 men, managed to have themselves on like a three-on-two <laughs> um, counter-attacking situation. And, and only because Jackson's offside and he can't get played the ball to him, do they then get that, that knock and then oh, yeah. the red? So, so therefore, the doubling down from Ange with 10 men, I thought, was almost the bigger mistake than the nine men. Because I think with 10 men, if Tottenham would have played like Liverpool played against Spurs last month, and given how bad Chelsea are at breaking a team down and how quickly they seem to lose confidence in themselves, I think Tottenham win the game with 10 men. I'm convinced Tottenham win that game. And obviously it's a counter... Like, you'll never know, right? It's really easy to sit here and stay. Um, and I don't think it's like, you know, Jurgen Klopp has principles, right? Jurgen Klopp has a style of play. Nobody said Jurgen Klopp was like a, a traitor to his ideology because his team, you know, stays in a shape and, and showed commitment. It doesn't mean you undo everything. It, it just seemed like ideology to the point of absurdity. And yeah, you can say it nearly worked because Son nearly scored and Dyer had a goal disallowed. Well, he's upside, so it doesn't really matter anyway. 
But also, if Chelsea had five brain cells between them, it, it would have been 10. Like, it, it was maddening. Like, you saw, there was twice, I think, Cucurella made these runs from deep, which just was so clear. Like, as soon as he did it once, they should have been doing it just repeatedly every 30 seconds. I said that to Liam. I was like, that's so clearly the run. There were four players offside and he just came <laughs> right. <from> deeper. <laughs> and instead, they're all sort of like lined up on the halfway line as though it's like a one, like a 50 metres race, which get which gave Spurs half a chance. I also saw, have you seen the clip that's going around on social media, Man United against Liverpool in about 1980? No, no. What, which one is it? So it's basically the same situation. You've got Man United sort of, I think it's Dave Sexton is the manager, United almost on the halfway line, and Alan Hansen, because everything is so tight and congested, just chips it over them and runs through himself. Oh, yes, <laughs> follow, yeah, I know that clip. Follows yeah, yeah. through his own pass and actually Dalglish offside but misses an open goal. So it's not the first time. I don't want to sort of be the kind of like... We've been pressing know, for ages. We've been pressing for ages and we've been squeezing the pitch for ages, but clearly teams have been. Um, I just couldn't believe more... How, how Chelsea didn't work it out. Like, I, I mean, I, don't I think guess that's, they, yeah, they did. I don't, I don't, but what I mean is, I don't think that's genius from Ange. But you don't think you're saying, I, I'm going to frazzle them with this kind of. No. Especially as, as Liam said, like Chelsea are so used to playing against the lowest of low blocks this season. It was just like, let, let's give them the exact opposite problem. And they seemed equally as flummoxed. But I do think broadly, Adam, I my take on the game was that the first 55 minutes from Spurs was awful. It was diabolical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, But I do think that the, the last 35 plus out of time was quite good. My issue is not with the nine men, it's with the 10 men. I, I, don't, I, I don't think he gave them a chance with 10 men, basically, because it was always going to create situations like that where you're forcing players fundamentally out of their depth in terms of, you know, the back four, the way that back four was in terms of Hoiberg, Dyer, Doggy Royale. Like there's no way they're getting through a, f- a full half without losing a man playing, playing that way for, for me. But I get, I get the whole point, like the spirit, you know, the direction, the, you know, everyone buys into it. And if Spurs fans want to go home happy from losing 4-1, at home to Chelsea when they could have been going 17 points clear then crack on do you know what's funny uh, Liam's been very very quiet <laughs> funny <laughs> enough considering Chelsea the team that won 4-1 and I guess um, we just alluded it to you there right it, t- it took him a while to sort of crack what Andrew's trying to do uh, about 20 minutes I mean that's a long time on a football pitch what what does this tell us about Poch's Chelsea I mean there's a lot of naivety there I think they had intelligent players on the pitch but naivety is the word um, and that and that was a big theme of of my match piece that's on the Athletic now. It, Chelsea's naivety kind of played out in three phases during the game. In the first half, it was the indiscipline that threatened to make it ten v ten and forced Pochettino to take off Levi Colwell at half time, which I thought was actually a really clear headed, sensible decision from Pochettino. And he was actually, I think, he he managed the game well, even if his team didn't. And then in the second half, there was that 20 minutes where they just didn't understand <laughs> how to beat a team of nine men um, defending on the halfway line and, and Nicholas Jackson constantly going too early and then calling for the ball from offside positions to the point where Chelsea actually stopped looking for him for a while, which made things worse because then Tottenham's strategy was actually working. Yeah, And then the third phase of Chelsea's naivety was the way that they managed the game at 2-1 up. 
where they committed so many silly fouls to give Tottenham free kicks to the two. I mean, they were incredible deliveries from Pedro Porro, but Tottenham was so clearly playing for those situations with nine men because they knew it was their best chance to get an equaliser. And for, for Eric Dyer's narrowly disallowed goal, four Tottenham attackers somehow managed to outmaneuver <laughs> six Chelsea defenders in the box to, to flick this ball on. And then obviously it's an amazing finish. Um, and then the second one, Rodrigo Bentancourt, is completely open. And, and it's just a bad connection that stops it being 2-2 in an incredibly raucous stadium with only a few minutes left. If that had happened, I have no idea what Chelsea would have done. I have no idea what, what would have happened from then. Guys, can, can, I just, can I just ask, like, as you were both in the stadium last night, clearly as, as media you have screens, which I suppose gives you a privilege that fans in the stadium don't, don't have. But like, did you have a clue what was going on? Like, did fans actually have a clue what was going on last night? No, and they're they're really, really, really annoyed about it because you know, like I've I've had messages from fans saying you'd be you would you would have been way better off watching that game at home last night than being there in the stadium. Well, it just felt like a TV product yeah, last night. No, exactly. I mean that that pe- I do think that period was possibly one of the worst I've ever seen in that respect. For, from the goal being disallowed, the the Caicedo goal being disallowed, to Cole Palmer scoring that penalty. I mean, it was about seven minutes, wasn't it? It just went on and on and on. And, and because they were checking so many things, they had a goal, first of all, to check. And within that goal, there were a few things. Right, we've done the goal. It was like they had a backlog of admin had built up. And it was like, right, okay, just, just can you just give us a week? We've got, we've got loads of complaints <laughs> to process. With these stop delays, you know, someone in the back end of Stockley Park is, is making these decisions. Does it take away from, you know, the, the joy of the game as a fan? You go, okay, the referee made a bad decision. We'll deal with it and move on, right? I mean, wh- where do we lie on that, Adam? I just think they're now so shit scared of making another monumental mistake or not even making a monumental mistake and having letters letters published on club websites. Like I think that was partly what we saw last night was some of the decisions, like the um the dying offside. I thought I thought I thought my eyes were going mad because mm. we saw the re- we saw like the replay straight away and it looked so clearly offside. So I know these like I know the angles can be misleading at certain times, but like it took them about th- two, two and a half minutes to do that. But the linesman had it ready. He was gone. Uh, yeah, the, the, li- the linesman. Move on. The right? linesman had it. I thought Jackson's first goal the same, Adam. I couldn't believe it because it was one of those where, right, they've done the freeze frame. Okay, Sterling's on side, fine, give the goal. But even that they had to do a couple of minutes. And I and you know, and I said that and someone came back to me and said, you know, but you know, what are they gonna what are they gonna do? Not check it properly? And I'm like, and I get that, but it's just, as you said, it's this culture of fear. It's understandable from a human perspective, but it's just so bad for everyone else. Yeah. And also like last night, I don't think there was a decision that was wrong. Mm. You know, like for all the delays with VAR, but I don't know, I don't watch football for correct decisions, which maybe yeah. sounds like a weird thing to say. Like you want decisions to be as correct as they can to the best of their ability, but I don't care enough about, you know, that Caicedo goal being disallowed, for example, you know, it ended up in a penalty to justify how much of the speed of the get. You know, that was a pull that shut that first half where you've got two teams basically who don't like each other and two managers doing pretty mad things tactically. Should have just been far faster. And the, the first half lasted an hour. To me, it's always uh, it, it, it's it, it's always justice versus entertainment. This is the this is the conversation, and we've gone so far down the road of trying to get 
total justice, which is in itself impossible with a set of inter- that, yeah. interpretive football rules. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. Hello listeners, Danny Kelly here, host of The View From The Lane, your dedicated Spurs podcast from The Athletic. On today's episode, we'll discuss an utterly insane match at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. You know, it's not even like we're just talking about, well, they, you know, they gave it a good go. It worked about as well as I think you could expect any tactic to work. They lost 4-1, Charlie. It didn't work, Charlie. That's the problem. It didn't work. No, it didn't. No, No, it didn't. But I don't think anything would have. And I think it worked about as well, about as well as any tactic could have done in that you have Son running through in the 93rd minute. I think any Spurs fan would have bitten your hand off for that after 55 minutes. I would rather lose the way Spurs lost last night than lose the way Liverpool lost six weeks ago. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of The View From The Lane. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Premier League managers should just manage their football clubs. I've never, and I never will, talk to a referee about the rules of the game. I think it's so hard for a referee to to, to officiate these days. Their, their authority is just constantly getting diminished. So Ange after the game seemed to go sort of the anti-Arteta approach. Do you think that was, I suppose, genuinely his view? Do you think he was trying to set himself up as Tottenham manager compared to Arsenal manager and get a load of credit in the bank? How did you read what was going on there? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things with that because the contrast between Postacoglu on VAR and Arteta on VAR, obviously they're poles apart. What I would say, and as some people have pointed out to me, Arteta was coming off the back of feeling like he'd been massively wronged and was emotional Postacoglu wasn't because as you say I don't, even if you hated VAR yesterday if anything Spurs probably got 
away with a bit because yeah. I think, Udo, you know, the only contentious one, well, there were two. Udogi and Romero could have both gone for reds before they did. So he, you know, he wasn't speaking at it, coming at it from such an emotional position. I do, though, think... I've never heard a manager speak as well as Postacoglu did about it because he came from the position of seeming, and you can question how genuine this is, to actually be thinking about how VAR affects the game as a whole rather than how it affects his team in that moment. I've never really heard a manager properly articulate it. And and Arteta was an extreme example, but 90% of the time managers are talking about VAR they're talking about it. How could they have wronged my team in this way? It's a disgrace. It's an injustice, et cetera, et cetera. What Postacoglu did, and I've made a lot of the things he said, I've said so many times, and I, I couldn't have agreed with him more what he says about how it kills the game. And I've, I've just never heard someone talk about it, a manager anyway, talk about it in that way. And the point about the referee, I think, is a really valid one and a really important one. Of course, it massively erodes the ref. He has no authority. Everyone knows now a goal is basically an, a starting point for negotiations. And it's awful. And, and, and the thing is, the, the thing about the, you know, do you want right decisions or not? Firstly, you know, what it comes down to, I, I, we had a system that was 90 odd percent effective anyway. Is it worth creeping that up? And look, VAR does mean that more correct decisions are reached because some are objective and they get them right. If that, if you think that's worth it versus what we lose from being able to celebrate goals from the pace of game, et cetera, et cetera, then fine. But I and I don't think, and I think most people, most people don't. And as Liam says, the idea that, that that's, I think, the fundamental mistake we made that we could reach this objective truth and everyone would be happy. It does not exist. Football is not a sport where there is an objective truth to these decisions. It's just not. We've seen that again and again. So, so I thought, you know, obviously the goal line technology has been amazing, right? Like that's just non that that is non <laughs> that is non negotiable. I thought offside might be a similar thing, and it may be once they go to the sort of semi automated aspect to it as well. But like, you're right what you say about the starting point for negotiation because if you take, for example, the goal that Man United had disallowed from Maguire being offside the other day, correct decision. But it was like the goal happened and then VAR went looking for, for something just in case. Now, that is the correct decision, but I genuinely don't think a Fulham fan watching three, the first three replays of that goal would have been thinking there's an offside there. But you, you're sort of spending minutes looking for ways to correct and correct certain things. And some people will think that's right because it gives you a higher level of accuracy and you can say it's worked but it's just a bit boring I think I'm with you though Adam though on that sort of culture of fear though because if they, if they, you, you then create an environment where people feel so scared to make a decision and second guess themselves and you're never making a right decision when you're second guessing yourself at all yeah and refs refs aren't making decisions on the pitch now I'm convinced I'm convinced of this like that you can see them almost like looking at an incident and then thinking I'll just wait for it to go out of play and let's have a chat about it and yeah, I think and, that's, and also, that's what's and, happening there. And Adam, with that Maguire one, there's every chance if it had been allowed, Fulham would then it would then be pointed out by lots of people on Twitter or whatever that actually Fulham were wronged. That gets back to Marco Silva, and Marco Silva says this is unacceptable. We need an apology. Apology probably comes from Howard Webb, and we go again. Just to bring it back to Postacoglu, I loved everything he said after the game, and I think. Football fans, no matter what you think of VAR, where you stand on the whole conversation and listen to what he said and the way he delivered it, because I think it was really, really good and really articulate. But the best thing he said was in response to a question which suggested that the managers should get together via the LMA 
and sort of instruct the referees on how to officiate games. You know what managers do? I'll tell you what managers do, me included. We try and find ways to bend the rules, to get around them. Tell me what the rule is, and I guarantee you'll have a room full of managers processing how can I get around this. And when do you hear a top coach admit that? Like mo- Most of them are so dishonest in their weekly comments about referees, and it's all about deflection from performances and, and other things that have happened in games. And I, I just think Postacoglu's way of going about it, I do think it's, it's a genuine outlook. Uh, I don't think it's something that he's putting on just to be contrary. Uh, it's really refreshing. Jackson's on a hat trick here, and Jackson has Mujic for company, and Jackson keeps on going, and Jackson has three! Nicholas Jackson, who wants to take this one on on whether or not that was the most underwhelming hat trick of all time? Uh, and his celebrations were even more beautiful. Can I give you some stats? Because these are, these are mind-blowing. <laughs> so this is with the gate nine men for 44 minutes. Jackson had seven touches... One pass, one dribble, five shots, three goals. And I'm not sure how many offsides. <laughs> how many potential offsides, yeah. And the guys I know, like from having worked in newspapers before, you often the ratings you will see in newspapers, you will have to file because of newspaper deadlines around sort of 60, 70 minutes. And I would love to see <laughs> what those yeah. what those ratings were at 60, 70 minutes. A, a player that scored a hat-trick gets a four out of 10. I mean, can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and lucky to get that, really. Like, I mean, and even, as you say, like the celebrations, he even did sort of, <laughs> he tries to do the Ronaldo one, didn't really put it off. He was doing the Rashford one, it looked a bit weird. Um, and, I mean, I, I hope, I, I, the first few games of the season, I actually thought he looked really good. He struck me as a player that would do well in bigger games where you almost need someone to be a nuisance up front and someone to kind of put themselves about. But I thought he would struggle to be kind of Chelsea's number nine in those games where they have to break teams down. I thought that was going to be his problem and that's kind of what, what's turned out. I also think like, you know, relative to what they spent on it, well, it was only about 30 million pounds, wasn't, wasn't he? So, you know, in, in that market, his return's actually pretty good so far the problem is he is literally their only striker so I think some of the expectations and burden that's been placed on him is probably slightly unfair um, at the moment I think he's he's probably struggled most from Christopher Nkunku having not played a Premier League minute because coming into this season Nkunku was supposed to be the guy who was the primary scorer in this team and and Jackson from the way he looked in pre-season was just shaping up to be this really nice find who could supplement Chelsea's firepower. And it actually looked like they were ready to go into the season with a pretty good, pretty potent attack. Um, and then Kunku going out changed all of that. And I think Jackson, particularly as Adam says, against teams defending in low blocks where he he doesn't get as many opportunities to, to run in behind offside or onside, he, he's really struggled to adapt to that. And... I think against Tottenham, what I saw, I think I, what what I saw with with the timing of his runs, I think, was an anxiety, an over eagerness to try to to win the game, um, because his confidence has been eroded over the last few weeks. And you could see, I think, after he'd scored the first one, he settled down, he stopped trying to go that little bit earlier, and and that's where the next the next two came from. He could have had six or seven. <laughs> And he still missed a bad one after he got his hat trick. He's 
swept the left footed shot over. I think his finishing is still going to be a bit streaky, but what he was doing really well in the opening weeks was he was, he was posing a constant threat and getting into lots of good positions. He doesn't necessarily have to be the most clinical striker in the world for Chelsea. If As long as he's getting into the positions often enough that he still scores at a reasonable rate and he's got, what, five in 10 now? I think he's got he's still got every possibility to have a very nice first season for Chelsea. And, and Pochettino really likes him. He's taken every public opportunity to talk about how big his potential is. Um, but he's clearly an, an unpolished diamond at this point. I mean, Brocco's been out as well, hasn't he? So that's yeah. meant he's, he's played, he played even more. I mean, I did think there was something... It reminded me of, like, in amateur football, you'll have those games where someone... It, it like keeps being offside or something or keeps missing loads of chances, but does eventually score. And obviously you're pleased with them, but you're also like, don't let that, don't be like really cocky about it after the game sort of thing. And I kind of felt that with his celebrations. It was like, great, take your goals. Maybe don't do that. I, I would say in his defence, the, the first goal, for instance, looks easy, but he's got a long time to think about that. It's in a game where they they can't get the break. That still requires a level of composure that he should be praised for. But um, one of the weirdest Premier League hat-tricks I can remember seeing. How did you describe his final goal, Charlie? A, a power league goal? Yeah, it was quite power league because he's just running through and it's and the goalkeeper's sort of not knowing what to do <laughs> to the point where the goalie just kind of sits down and he just can stroke it into an empty net. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. Romero sent off. Nicky van der Ven hobbling off. And James Madison required to take his leave. This is 20 minutes of carnage for Tottenham. Yeah. Spurs start losing key players, Madison, Mickey van der Ven. And uh, you've got these two red cards as well. The squad isn't that all-star starting lineup that everyone's become accustomed to. This is a real test for Ange now to try and get that same momentum back, that kind of fire in his team after, you know, what some might say is a depleting defeat. Yeah, it will be really interesting because, we, you know, yesterday was basically like all the fears Spurs fans have had about the last few weeks all coming together in one crazy game. You know, it was what if the rub the green maybe doesn't slightly go our way as it has done in some games? What if we lose key players to injuries? What if we get exposed defensively? Well, that all happened in the most like turbocharged way. And yeah, now they've got to go to Wolves with only Pedro Porro uh, of their back four and possibly James Madison out as well. It, it is a huge test. I think at least the international break might give Madison a rest if he's not fit enough to play. And then, yeah, after they play this, they've got Villa, they've got City away. So not only is the opposition getting stronger, the options they have is getting weaker. So it will be a big test, you know, and Postacoglu will will relish it and he'll, you know, I'm sure he won't take a backward step. But, you know, they don't have Van der Ven there who's lightning quick that means they can basically play in the opposition half. If Ben Davis is fit, you'd think it would probably be Ben Davis and direct centre-back, Royale at left-back. That's a, that's a very, very different back four. But as he showed yesterday, even with Dyer and Hoybier, he's going to play that high line. So, you know, will, can Wolves exploit it? Do you reckon they, they, they dip their hand in their pocket in January, Adam? I don't know. I mean, it depends how severe, you know, Van der Ven's hamstring injury is, doesn't it? I think to a certain extent. I think they'll probably be looking at it anyway, that they probably need, need another centre-half over the next six months. I mean, look, I mean, Spurs only have a game a week, so they don't need to go out and start signing four or five players for the second half of the season. And this is just one game. Still had an amazing start to the season. They are still 11 points clear of Chelsea. I mean, I mean, 
if it wasn't for the chaos last night, it probably would be 17, like 17 clear of Chelsea. It's pretty amazing the way that that has shifted. And I don't think Andrew wants to sort of be bringing players into the squad for no, just to fill gaps um, as in short-term solutions. I mean, even before this injury, we reported last week that, you know, centre-back is something they were going to be looking at in January. Part of the reason they were going to do that, because they weren't necessarily going to be looking for a starting centre-back, they were going to be looking for someone to give them an insurance policy against this happening. They sold Davinson Sanchez even after the uh, UK transfer window had closed. He went to Turkey. so and, and that felt at the time like a massive gamble and one that, okay, it was fine for the first 10 or so games, but now they're going to have to deal with that. That's the risk they took. But yeah, January, they, they will be looking for a centre-back. But who knows who they can get? You need some, someone who isn't watching what they did last night thinking, I don't want to be anywhere near that. Like, which, which is probably 75% of centre-halves won't naturally look at that thinking, I'm going to look great in this. In the same way as, you know, Villa, mm. right? You watch Villa play. And I can't imagine like the anxiety of being a, like, a Villa fan with that, the line that they have at the moment. Same as like Tottenham <laughs> last night. Like it's very entertaining. It's very fun. But you have to be a particularly kind of unique footballer to actually cope with that with that situation week in week out and not make yourself, you know, someone like in the summer, for example, Harry Maguire was available, and there was a bit of. I remember, I think Harry Kane actually was quite keen on Spurs signing Maguire, but like, can you imagine how bad Maguire would look? being asked to do that every week. That's not his fault. It's just not his style of play. John Terry under AVB. Yeah, like in the same way as if you put Maguire into Conte's Spurs, he'd look absolutely brilliant because because of how deep they're, they're playing and defending. So you're probably talking about at least another 50 million. I don't know. I think he would, Postacoglu would feel confident. Well, I think as well, players are more, back themselves more than we think yeah. maybe. And I do think Postacoglu would feel pretty confident that even if you're not lightning quick, if you, if you embrace what he's trying to do, and also bear in mind, he will accept that it's going to backfire sometimes. I do think that makes a big difference. You're not playing for a manager who's going to absolutely bollock you because if he's saying you've got to play this high line, he's going to take responsibility for that. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite that specific a skill set, but you know, it's always hard to get in the right person in January. Do you think he'd move Basuma to centre-half on Saturday for a bit more pace? <sighs> I think he offers too much as a number six. He's so crucial. I, w- I wonder if they might play, if Madison's out, I don't think they'd do this because they'd probably play Bentoncourt, but whether they'd consider, and again, I just think it's so not a Postacoglu way of thinking, but whether they'd put Hoybier in midfield to stiffen it up and just protect that back four a bit. But I, I, I think Basuma will stay where he is. And by the way, he's a booking away from from another ban. Liam, quick on you, uh, Chelsea. City next. Um, fair to say, very different tactical opposition <laughs> to Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, yeah, I mean, y- you'd like to think Chelsea are, are riding high in confidence, but that game really showed some glaring weaknesses in in, in, in this team. How do you take on City next? Well, the the margin for error against City is almost zero. We saw a lot of errors at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. So the biggest thing Chelsea can take from the Spurs result is the result is the confidence of just knowing what it feels like to win a big game. It's been so long since Chelsea actually beat a, a big Premier League team. Um, and and even while they, you know, they took a lot of heart, I think, from the performances at home to Liverpool and Arsenal earlier this season, it's not a win. It's not three points. So um, it does give them something to go into this game for. I think just as importantly, Rhys James looks better. He still doesn't look 100%. 
And it was noticeable that the, literally the second they went 2-1 up, Pochettino brought him off because you know he, he wants to wrap him in cotton wool again um, and, and try and keep him fit for that game. He, he will be crucially important for Chelsea. I, th- I think actually avoiding defeat against City would, would probably be a bigger result. Uh, for Chelsea than than this win over Spurs, given the way City are playing and the way they're looking right now. So I think that that's the, I'm not saying Chelsea going in into it looking for a draw, but um, that's probably the most realistic way for them to try and maintain momentum heading into what is a considerably tougher run of fixtures between now and the end of the year. Well, while we're talking about City then, um, let's talk about a former City player, Liam. Cole Palmer at Chelsea scores another penalty yesterday. What do you make of his progress? Yeah, he's uh, Pochettino spoke a lot when Palmer arrived about the need to give him time to, to settle in, to settle into a new city as well as a new club. It hasn't felt that way watching him on the pitch. From the, from the first moment he started appearing as a sub for Chelsea, he looked like a natural in this team. It's been really, really impressive to watch. Given how few Premier League minutes he'd actually had at City when you looked at it, he he doesn't seem to feel pressure. And he's now scored three penalties, which in itself is quite noticeable that he's he's earned that status after so little time in this in this squad. Uh and and each penalty has been more high pressured than the last, with with a longer delay, more time to think and and can do yourself over mentally than than the previous one, and he in a, in open play he's he's been Chelsea's most intelligent attacker. He consistently makes smart decisions on the ball. He takes up intelligent positions to receive the ball between the lines. He does a lot of what I'd call peppy things. Um, you can see he's had a really good football education at City, and um, and he's he's often been starting on the right flank, but drof- drifting into the number ten role with. Sometimes Conor Gallagher shuttling out to the right to compensate, and it really gives him the opportunity to to affect games. And the other thing I think that Pochettino really values about him is that he's such an intelligent presser, uh, which is another thing that clearly that you know Guardiola demands. He, he he doesn't just work incredibly hard, but he's so smart in the way he positions his body, cuts off passing angles. Um, He's just been a real asset to Chelsea from day one with and without the ball and a super reliable, consistent performer, which is not what you'd expect from a player of his age and experience level. Let's end it there. All I'm saying is if last night's anything to go by, bring on round two at the bridge. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Charlie. And also thank you, Liam, as well. Please remember to rate and review the podcast if you are enjoying it. Right, we're back tomorrow. See you then. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. The Athletic.